Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. During the month of June, we have been looking at the exile experience of the people of God where they are forced to live as strangers in a strange land. So we started off and we saw the quest of Abraham who left the greatest, most sophisticated, largest, richest city in the world, Ur, to live as an exile in the land of promise. Then we looked at Moses, how when he came of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he left so that 40 years later he could come back and lead the people of God out of Egypt, out of their bondage, into the promised land. Last Sunday we looked at Daniel and his friends and their experience of living as exiles in Babylon. Today I want to conclude this series by looking at the exile of the early Christians. In his first epistle, the apostle Peter opens and closes his letter to the Christians living in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire with an interesting salutation and a cryptic greeting. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles living in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, she who is in Babylon greet you. Now, when the Jewish people were exiles in Babylon, they were quite literally strangers in a strange land. When they first arrived, they composed a song where they said, how can we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? These are things they had to learn. They had to figure out how to live in pagan Babylon without becoming pagans. I mean, they had to live they got to get on with their lives, but how do you live in pagan Babylon without becoming a pagan? That was their challenge. Their exile in Babylon taught the Jewish people how to negotiate these competing allegiances. They found out that it was possible to maintain their covenant identity while living in Babylon. It was possible for them to retain their fidelity while living in a pagan culture, but there were always risks involved. It was never completely safe to maintain their fidelity, their covenant fidelity to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At times they had a risk. Fiery furnaces and lion's dens. Now, when Peter, in this first epistle of his, speaks of Babylon, and calls the Christians he's writing to exiles, he's drawing upon that. He's referring to that Jewish experience 500 years earlier of living as exiles in Babylon. But here's the thing. The Christians living in the eastern empire of the the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, to whom Peter is writing his letter, They're not actually exiles. See, the Jewish people were deported forcibly from Jerusalem, relocated a thousand miles away in Babylon. 
The Christians that Peter is writing to in these eastern provinces are not actual exiles. So why does Peter address them as the exiles living in the provinces? Because by virtue of their baptism, they have now become exiles in the land of their birth. They had grown up in the Roman Empire, but then they heard about a new Caesar whose name is Christ. And now they've pledged their allegiance to Him and they've been baptized into Christ and suddenly they're strangers in a strange land. Baptism is our sacramental identification with Jesus Christ. We're baptized into the body of Christ. We're baptizing people next Sunday. If you haven't been baptized, sign up, sign up, sign up today. You can do it online, you do it in the foyer. Um, baptism is our sacramental identification with Christ. We're baptized into the body of Christ. Another way of talking about it is that with baptism, we become citizens of the heavenly kingdom of Christ. Now remember, the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom that's far off in a, dif- a distant place. It's a different dimension. It's that dream that I had where the sirens went off and suddenly I saw the fabric of the cityscape before me torn open, revealing a more glorious city that had always been there that was now fully arriving. The the kingdom of heaven is not out there somewhere. It's, It's here. It's just not yet fully revealed. But we are the people of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we believe that we belong to that kingdom. Yes, we have to live in this world too. But our real citizenship is in the heavens where Jesus Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Say amen. With our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, we become spiritual exiles in the land of our nationality. So that... We're no longer quite at home here. Yeah, we're at home, we're at home. But, but we realize that the kingdom of heaven operates just on different values. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be covered. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Is, is that indicative of the culture that we were raised in? Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit. No, it's blessed are the badasses, you know. Because they'll get their way. They'll, they'll scrap and fight and get their way. No, we have a different kingdom with different... Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons and daughters of God because they're in the family business and so on. Well, not only does Peter call the baptized exiles, even though they'd lived there all their life, he also closes his letter with the cryptic line, She who is in Babylon greets you. So, you you have these churches. I mean, this is in the first decades of Christian faith. This is is probably, you know, this this is early on. But you have churches and believers that are popping up in what today we would call Turkey, in, in various provinces, in today what we would call Turkey. And Peter writes a letter to them. And at the end of his letter... He says, she who is in Babylon greets you. As if Peter is writing from Babylon and some woman in Babylon is sending her greetings. 
But the thing is, Peter wasn't in Babylon. By the first century A.D., Babylon was a, a small, insignificant, nearly abandoned city in the desert. You know where Peter was. Where was Peter? He was in Rome. What he means is, the she is the church. The church in Rome sends you greetings, but he doesn't call Rome Rome. He calls Rome Babylon. In other words, that Rome for Peter was a spiritual Babylon. That is the latest iteration of idolatrous empire. God in creation is uh, clearly celebrating all kinds of diversity. I mean, it isn't like we have like two or three kinds of fish. There's lots of different kinds of fish. Same for the birds and on it goes. Well, God loves the diversity of nations with their languages and ethnicities and customs and cultures and all of that. God celebrates that. God doesn't want there just to be one monolith. Next things, let's mix it up a little bit. I mean, you know, if it was all one culture, we wouldn't have those ethnic foods that we love so much. It'd just be one thing. God loves the diversity of nations and their languages and their cultures and their customs and all that. Empires, on the other hand, empires are rich, economically wealthy, powerful, big militaries. Empires are rich, powerful nations who believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda. Now, Whereas God loves nations, God is always opposed to empire. Because when nations get big and haughty and rich and powerful and they say, I have a right to rule other nations, I have a manifest destiny to shape history, they are impinging upon the sovereignty of God, for this is what God has pledged to His Son. Who has a divine right to rule the nations? Jesus! Who has a manifest destiny to shape history according to the divine agenda? Jesus. So, empires get too big for their britches. They become full of hubris. And they become idolatrous. And the Bible maintains a sustained critique of empire clearly from Genesis to Revelation. It kind of ebbs and flows in its intensity but never disappears. But the Bible doesn't use the technical word empire. The Bible uses the prophetic coded word Babylon. That's what Babylon is. Babylon is empire. Rich, powerful nations believe they have divine right to rule other nations, manifest destiny, shape history according to the way they want it. Babylon. But Babylon is fallen. That's, that's the prophetic cry, Old New Testament. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. So Babylon's always falling, but there's always a new one to take its place. Until the final perusia, the final siren, the final tearing of the fabric, and the final establishment of the kingdom of, of Christ, there will be Babylons that come and go. So, so after, after the Babylon Babylon, it fell. 
and it was replaced by the Persian Babylon. And it fell, and it was replaced by the Greek Babylon. And by the time Peter's writing his letter to the Christians in the eastern provinces, it's been replaced by the Roman Babylon. She who is in Rome greets you. This uh, critique of empires Babylon reaches its crescendo in the book of Revelation, which it's mostly what the book of Revelation is about. Revelation is mostly a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire depicted as Babylon and a beast that is finally conquered by the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And so that's why the prophetic call to action in the book of Revelation is, Come out of her, my people lest you participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, he doesn't mean you've got to literally uh, immigrate. The revelator means live according to the Lamb. Live according to the new Jerusalem. Don't just stay stuck in the ways you've been formed by this Babylon, or what he really means is the Roman Empire. Don't just live as a Roman, live as a Christian. That's what the book of Revelation is saying. Now, let's talk a little bit about the early Christians in the Roman Empire, which I just got to tell you, I find that fascinating. I've read so many books, and a new one came in the mail yesterday. It's not even published yet, but they, they know that I like those books, and so they send them to me hoping that I'll tweet about them. <laughs> well, we'll see if it's any good. But I'm just fascinated about what it was like to be a Christian in the early days. And the early days, by the way, is we mean by that the first 300 years, which is not a short amount of time. I mean, 300 years, is, that's a long time, and yet it's only 15% of church history. So by early Christian, we mean the first 15% or the first 300 years. Now, the great challenge for these early Christians in the first three centuries, was to live according to their baptismal identity in the midst of the Roman Empire. That's always a challenge. Um, the early Christians, they had waves of persecution. They weren't always persecuted. Some emperors sort of ignored them. Others, Nero especially, Diocletian, Marcus Aurelius, uh, some of these um, emperors really launched vicious programs of state-sponsored persecution against the Christians. Other times, persecution would just spring up organically within a particular province or city. wouldn't say the towns because the, the, the early Christian movement was a city movement. It, didn't, it took a long time to get out into the rural areas. The word pagan just means rural. It just took a long time to get the, the church and the Christianity first flourished in the cities. And sometimes, you know, there would be a, a flood like we had or, or something like that. Some catastrophe befalls the city and they say, well, we must have, the, the gods must be angry. Who angered the gods? Well, it's got to be that newfangled religion, those Christians. And so then sometimes it would just be a spontaneous persecution uh, of the Christians. And, and they were always kind of suspect because they didn't show up to all the festivals, which were, which were part of the social cohesion. 
And they were viewed as kind of unpatriotic because they wouldn't show up because they're devout to Jesus. Or it might be just a little simple things. Like, like you're walking into the marketplace. You're going into the market. At the entrance of the market, typically you would have a bust of Caesar. They have to change them all the time because, you know, Caesars come and go pretty regularly. Almost always killed. Palace intrigues, you know. But they would have a, a bust of the current Caesar with a censer in front of it. And you were, it was, it's, it, you're just, it's innocuous, you think. You're just supposed to take a little pinch of incense, put it in the, put it in the censer with the coals, and a little, little, woof, little, little wisp of incense, you know, before the bust of Caesar. No big deal. Except if you don't do it. And yeah, they might see them. They're walking in the marketplace and they didn't do that. Oh, you didn't, you didn't do the incense thing. No. Why? Well, Jesus is Lord. See, that was a political statement. Lord was an official imperial title granted by the Senate to the Caesar. Caesar's Lord. And Christians were like, Jesus is Lord. And that's what gets them in trouble periodically. And yet, despite that, despite the fact that there are periodic waves of persecution very often directed at the pastors and the bishops and the leaders, they figured that was the most effective way to go after them. Sometimes it was general. Oftentimes, though, it was... And then, so then you have the great legacy of the martyrs. Because very often, the martyrs were your pastors, your teachers, and your leaders. And they learned to venerate the martyrs. Well, this continued for 300 years. And despite the fact that they're being persecuted, the early church, first 300 years, is growing at a rate of 40% per decade. Which is really good. So that by the time we get into the 4th century, the 300s, the church is somewhere around 10-12% to of the empire. It's way too big to ignore anymore. And that's when something happened. It was the year 312. There was a vacancy on Palatine Hill. Caesar had died. There wasn't a successor. That was always a problem for them. They didn't ever have good means of succession. And so there's a civil war going on between two generals that think, I want to be Caesar. Constantine and Maxentius. And there's a decisive battle at the Milvian Bridge. Pretty much, it's, they know the winner becomes the next Caesar. Now, there's a legend connected with this. And I, I believe it's nothing but a legend. That's my, that's my studied opinion. I believe this is just a legend. It was a legend. It, it was a legend. That was, it was present as a legend, but I think it's only a legend. But the legend goes like this. On the eve of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine, this Roman general who is not a Christian, he's a pagan, his father is a pagan general, so he's following in the family business. But his mother was one of these Christians, Helena. She was, she was a believer. So he grows up in this tension of a pagan general father and a Christian believing mother. The legend goes that on the eve of the battle, he had a vision and he saw a cross in the sky with the words, In this sign, sign of the cross, you shall conquer meaning kill. Go out and kill your enemies in the sign of the cross. And so Constantine placed the sign of the cross 
on the shields and armor and weapons of his army. And the next day they prevailed in battle. This is the legend. Prevailed in the battle and Constantine becomes Caesar. He doesn't become a Christian immediately. He delays his baptism until he's on his deathbed, which was not a practice of the Christians. But Caesar seems to acknowledge, you know, you really can't be Caesar and a Christian at the same time. But he does give Christianity favored status and soon thereafter establishes it as effectively the state religion of the Roman Empire. This is what we mean by Christendom, basically. It's Christianity wed to political power. Or we could say it this way, Christianity as political power, or Christianity with political power. That's what we mean by Christendom. And people pretty much celebrated this. You can get it. You can get it. If you belong to this early Christian movement that through the first three centuries there have been periodic waves of persecution, and all of a sudden you find out that Christianity is now the official religion, and there's no more persecution, you're kind of like, yeah, I kind of like this arrangement. But it did create problems. Because now we're kind of back to Caesar being Lord. Because from Constantine on, all of the emperors are Christians except one, Julian the Apostate. That's how he got his name, Apostate. He tried to take Rome back into pagan worship. So you have all these Christian emperors, and so Caesar's back to being Lord. Well, what do you do with Jesus? You can't be Christians and just get rid of Jesus. Well, he gets effectively demoted to Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. Jesus' job now is to get you into heaven when you die, but the world's still going to be run by Caesar and his sword. Oh, it was a mistake. The church became a religious tool in service of Babylon, worldly empire. It was a huge mistake. But I want to be gracious here. I think we need to be. I think it was an inevitable mistake. I sincerely think that mistake was unavoidable. One of my favorite theologians, Gerhard Lofink, he's a German guy, he's in his 80s now. He writes about that. He writes in his book, Does God Need the Church? He writes, The development toward an imperial church, and finally toward a state religion, was almost a matter of necessity given the constellation of late antiquity. He's just saying it was probably inevitable. Perhaps the church had to take that road. It was a grandiose attempt to create a Christian empire. You see how seductive that is. Let's have a Christian empire. And Christianity will have a divine right to rule over other nations. And Christianity will have a manifest destiny to shape history according to its agenda. Only a careful look at the people of God in the Old Testament, their experiment with the state, and the collapse of that experiment could have preserved the church from repeating the same old mistake. But it was not possible in late antiquity or in the Middle Ages, for people to read the Old Testament so analytically. Political theology was instead enraptured with David and Solomon. Just remember, 
that Solomon is not in the Old Testament as a something to aspire to, but as a cautionary tale. That in the end, what Solomon succeeds in doing is recreating Egypt in Israel. Only the history in the modern era shattered the dream. Today, the experiment, the experiment of a Christian empire. Today, the experiment is truly at an end and can never be resumed. Well, I wish that were true, Brother Lofink. Can never be resumed. Well, it should never be. We should have learned our lesson by now that the kingdom of God does not come by the means of power, the means of force, the means of politics. But there are still those who will try. Accepting the truth that God's purposes are not brought about by Caesar's sword has been the hardest lesson for churches to learn that reside within an amicable empire. If the empire isn't actively persecuting the Christians, the temptation is for the Christians to say, well, let's just use the empire to bring about God's purposes. Let me just say it this way. Maybe you'll get it this way. The ring of power is endlessly seductive. It's our precious. We want the precious. It's a gift. We can do good. We can rule the world. No, it'll just corrupt you. It'll turn Smeagol into Gollum. It'll turn Jesus' followers into crusaders. Mm. The only way to avoid the endlessly seductive temptation toward the ring of power is to just keep focused on the cross. The, cro the kingdom comes like that. It comes like that. It comes like that. It looks like that. It always looks like that. It doesn't come any other way. It doesn't come by the ring of power. It doesn't come by Caesar's sword. So, Babylon is never compatible with the kingdom of Christ. It's only a rival to it. And like the Jews living in Babylon and the early Christians living in the Roman version of Babylon, we must learn to live in the tension of our dual citizenship. Resisting the temptation towards idolatry because empires are always idolatrous. They may try to hide it, but empires are always idolatrous and what they mostly worship is themselves. They worship themselves. But that doesn't mean that we should seek an ad adversarial relationship with Babylon. No, we should not do that at all. As we live in Babylon, we can and should seek the well-being, the flourishing, the shalom of the society. This is what Jeremiah says to the exiles in Babylon when he wrote that letter to them. This is the first, after they'd first been deported. The city's been destroyed. They've been deported to Babylon. Um, Jeremiah has been left back behind. And he writes a letter to the exiles. And he says, look. I know there's some prophets that saying you're only going to be here, you know, for a few months or most a year or so, and then you'll all be coming, you're not coming back. It'll be at least 70 years before you can come back. So you got to get on with your life. Don't just sit around and be refugees. Get on with your life. Create businesses. 
integrate into the society. Get married. Don't let your populations diminish. And then he goes on and says, but seek the welfare. That, that's the, the word there, shalom. You know that word. Seek the shalom, the welfare of the city. That's Babylon. Where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom you shall find your shalom. Amen. So like Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can work for Babylon even at the highest levels. As long as we remember there is a line of idolatry that cannot be crossed. We can serve Nebuchadnezzar. We can serve Caesar. But that will never be our highest calling. Our most important task as Christians living in Babylon is the holy vocation of prayer and to proclaim the gospel. We are a kingdom of priests, we're told. We're told that in the book of Revelation. A kingdom of priests. We're all priests. We're all priests. And the highest vocation of the priest is that of prayer. That we are the praying people. And so the apostle Paul, writing a letter to Timothy about how to pastor a church in the Roman Empire, says this. First Peter, first Timothy, chapter two. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. That's what we want. In all godliness and dignity, this is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. So I want to conclude this series on living as strangers in a strange land by reading the final paragraph of my favorite essay by one of my favorite theologians. The essay, which has maybe inspired this whole series, is No Enduring City. And the theologian is David Bentley Hart. By the way, if you're interested in the essay, it's long. It's kind of academic, but it's good. It's, all, it's available online. Just Google David Bentley Hart, No Enduring City. The whole essay's there. This is how the essay concludes. Perhaps the best moral sense Christians can make of the story of Christendom now. Hold on. Christendom. What do we mean by Christendom? We mean Christianity as political power. Christianity as political persuasion. Christianity attempting to wield the sword of Caesar. That's Christendom. Perhaps the best moral sense Christians can make of the story of Christendom, because it's not, it doesn't exist for the first 300 years. The early church didn't do this. It starts with Constantine following the year 312. Perhaps the best moral sense Christians can make of the story of Christendom now, from the special vantage of its aftermath, is to recall that the gospel was never bound to the historic fate of any political or social order. I don't know if you get that. 
The gospel, the proclamation of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, is not dependent upon a particular nation state having a particular amount of power or run by a particular party or any of that nonsense. The gospel was never bound to the historic fate of any political or social order, but always claimed to enjoy a transcendence of all times and places. Perhaps its presence in human history should always be shatteringly angelic. It announces. What we do with the gospel is we proclaim it. Don't spend as much time explaining it. Just proclaim it. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Word made flesh, nailed to a cross, went down in death, was raised on the third day, is exalted to the right hand of God, and is Lord. There's the gospel. I didn't explain anything. I just proclaimed it. Perhaps the presence in human history of the gospel should always be shatteringly angelic. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, shatteringly angelic. It announces a truth that breaks in upon history ever and again, always changing or even destroying the former things in order to make all things new. That being so, modern Christians, that's you and me, Modern Christians should find some joy in being forced to remember that we are citizens of a kingdom, not of this world. That here we have no enduring city. That we are called to live as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Amen. Stand up with me. We're going to come now to the meal that sustains us. By the way, next Sunday we will actually come. But we're going to now come and participate in the Eucharist, in communion, with our Savior who gives us life. In preparation for that, we will confess our faith and then confess our sins and receive the absolution of the Lord. Make this confession with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins. And in humility, ask for forgiveness. So, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
All of your sins are forgiven. Amen. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you have failed to come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ, broken for you. The blood of Christ, shed for you.